Friday. I'm Asam, and we are still top of the league. This is the Friday show. Got a big panel with me today. Mr. Daisy Cutter himself, Mr. Stephen Tudor. Hello, Steve. Hello, how are you? I'm very good, how are you? I'm good. I love the fact that we always do this and pretend that we haven't had a chat beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> Off air, on air. The, uh, the magic of broadcasting. And the only person who I allow to interrupt me so often, Mr. Howard Hawking. How are you doing, Howard? Fine, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, boys, I, I feel as though we're in good spirits this morning. Good Friday, which I presume is because the league table looks very, very, very pretty this morning still. Um, well, can I just say, I've also cracked level 1,263 on Candy Crush. It's taken me a month, so... How are you still playing Candy Crush? <laughs> because I hate it so much, I keep going back in and playing it to spite myself. <laughs> so yeah, I'm in a well great done, mood. <laughs> Excellent, well done. Well, it's 2008. Eh? Is it 2008? Have I gone back in time? Uh, oh, well, I've got people to catch. I've got friends to overtake, so... <laughs> That's how that's Fair how enough. they get you in, you see. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how Steve's going to feel about my obsession with Nokia Snake. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Right, lads. Listen, going to bring the tone right down immediately. Um, first opening question, Benjamin Mendy. How big a problem is this, and how do we see this playing out? I'm I'm surprised. I, I mean, obviously. I've expressed frustration at, at Mendy's situation, but it's not really his fault. Um, Steve, I'm going to start with you. How big a problem is this for you? It's a big problem and it's an expensive problem um, because by the looks of things, uh, it increasingly looks like this summer where City are going to have to go out and buy a brand new spanking, very expensive left back. Um I'm kind of conflicted as regards to what's come about uh, as regards to, you know, the, the knee flaring up again after his minute at, at Burton. So, um, part of me thinks, you know, if that's the case, why was he played on such a pitch? And, you know, it was so kind of unnecessary. But then I also think, well, that's a really serious problem if it only takes, you know, a few minutes on, on, a, on a kind of ropey football pitch to... Um, to to suffer such a setback, um, I'm going to take. I'll, I'll leave it to Howard to talk about kind of you know the actual left back situation and how big a loss Mendy himself will be if that's the case. And I just want to kind of just chip in with a, a, another angle, which is go for it. I've seen a lot of ang- and you've referred to this yourself, Asan. You know, I've seen a lot of exasperation and anger aimed towards the player himself. Um, I interviewed Paul Lake a number of years ago, you know, when his book came out and the book deals with his years of depression and, you know, looking at his years of, of injuries at City. Uh, and it really brought it home to me. It's always stuck with me ever since. Just kind of how horrible it is for a footballer to endure recurring injuries. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't like to see that on Twitter. I don't like to... You know, I, I, can, I get it. It's understandable. The frustration has to be aimed at somewhere... And so, you know, why not the source? But no one's going to feel worse than Benjamin Mendy right now. Um, so, yeah, in that aspect, anyway, I just hope that people kind of back him and support him, uh, no matter what the consequences are uh, further down the line. 
Yeah, spot on. I think mm. that um, that's probably why I asked the question because I I have expressed frustration in the past at, at Mendy's situation. Um, even in the review that we did yesterday, I mean, I, I basically said that I was furious at the club for not buying another left back. Um, I, I just want to be clear that that's not, you know, that's not being annoyed at Mendy. Like yeah. Mendy, it's not Mendy's fault that he's injured or that he's got issues with his knee. Um, Howard, I'm going to frame this question slightly differently to you. Are we being a little bit premature? If you look at Mendy's age, right? Granted, he's had um, two bad knee injuries whilst he's been at City. But if you look at the kind of the... Even the evolution in in uh, treatment of injuries since Paul Lake was playing, I think we we kind of live in an era where you know you can recover from most even serious injuries. Mm. You can, generally, you can recover from particularly if you're the right age and you've got the right fitness levels about you. Um, so, are we being a little bit premature in the sense that even with what's left of the season? Mendy can have a very big impact. Maybe what's happening right now is more a case of he's done the 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 minutes against Burton. The knee flares up. They concerned that the flare up is a little bit too much for what's happened after the game. So it has to limit his training. Has to do more rehabilitation. I see. Everybody's upset that it was in Barcelona, but I said yesterday, and I still feel like I would expect that that's like the final go-ahead, that you go back to Dr. Cougar and he checks the knee after the swelling and he goes, right, you're good now, you can go and play a game. Um, and with Chelsea coming on on Sunday, am I being too optimistic there, Howard? Well, Is that uh, me spinning it way too optimistically? Well, we don't know really. <laughs> I mean, people at the club and Pep know more about how you know serious this flare-up is uh it doesn't have to be serious so no i wouldn't say you've been overly optimistic they're going to be so cautious about this same with you know i mean look at kevin de bruyne how he how he's just eased back in eased back in then left out again then he's back in this you know they're just being very careful and if even if they wrote off a season just to make sure that knee's okay will do that rather than playing for 10 games where he could make a difference. So let's not assume that, you know, this is the future now. His knee's knackered for good. Uh, he could, of course, go three years without more than a couple of weeks off. And it's probably the fact, and that's the reasoning for just being very cautious now. We don't really know how bad it is, so it's hard to say. Mm. Uh, no, it's not. It's obviously not the end for him. But... If we don't see much of him, you know, the rest of the season, it does pose a dilemma for the club. What 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 if he gets to that fitness at the end of the season, last couple of weeks, he's fully fit, he's yeah. fine. Now the club are in the summer and the club are like, right, have we got a fully fit uh, left back? Or three weeks into the season, or two days after the <laughs> transfer window shuts, his knee goes again and we're like, oh, you know, it's, you just can't call it. Yeah, you're tossing a coin in the way. Either way, we need to buy a left back because we should have two of them. Uh, the problem is, you know, Mendy's Fitness decides whether you go for a cheaper, experienced backup or up and coming young player 
or we go big because we've given up on him. Now, we're not at the point of giving up on him, as he should never give up on a player because he's had a couple of injuries anyway. Uh, and as others have said, we're not going to be able to, you know, even if it's ruthless, even if he deserves to go, has been, you know, a disgrace off the pitch and stuff, you, you wouldn't get rid of him anyway. <laughs> I mean, he, you know, one's going to, we're not going to get the transfer feedback if he has got, you know, injury problems and the wages would be a problem. So we're kind of committed in a way to giving him more chances. Uh, but it would help his cause. You know, he has to step back on that pitch when he's fully confident in his own body. You know, Steve said it's psychological with the players as well. Gundogan has talked about how it, you know, it could take him a year. I think he's there now, Gundogan. And people yeah. were criticising his performances. They don't have a clue. <laughs> as Steve said, they don't have a clue I yeah, I sprained a ligament the day after the Liverpool match and I'm absolutely oh, absolutely killing me that I can't get to the shops <laughs> imagine what it's like for a footballer when it's their livelihood and a serious injury you know not a sprain or something like that it absolutely is it's the mind as, as much as the body so it's got to be given time uh, but it really would help if we do see him for a good six weeks to eight weeks at the end of the season. Need, I do think we need to see him at the end of this season. Um, but I also think that a little bit, this is on the club. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, Mendy's in that position where, because there's no natural backup for Mendy, when Mendy's out, we have a weakness in the team and therefore we get frustrated with Mendy being injured. Kevin De Bruyne was missing for the first half of the season. We didn't miss him because in his position, we got so many players. Actually, you look across the pitch and with the exception of Fernandinho's position, we've got so many players in each position where we can lose a player to injury. We can have an injury-prone player and it basically doesn't matter. Um, it just so happens that in at left-back, we have an issue, a quality issue, a personnel issue. Therefore, it makes it more frustrating from the outside when Mendy goes down. And I think... Even if it's natural that we would take some of that frustration out on Mendy, I don't think that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of with you. I, I think we have to wait and see how the rest of this season pans out. And even you know the fact that he was in Barcelona yesterday, it doesn't mean that he absolutely won't be uh, available for Sunday. It might just be that he's trained all week and that they want him to go and have a scan because he's trained at the right intensity and they want to make sure that everything's cool before they stick him on the pitch on Sunday. Um, again, that could just be me being very uh, hopeful. Uh, okay, second quick opening question. UEFA are looking to abolish the away goals rule in European competitions. Uh, Steve, is this a good or a bad thing? It's a bad thing in my oh. opinion. Um, <laughs> what, what, what was that noise? <laughs> oh, nothing, nothing. nothing. <laughs> uh, well... I just don't really see the point in in changing it. I, I think it's it doesn't seem to have a significant flaw. Um, it doesn't seem to have a, a problem that needs correcting. In, in, again, in my opinion, it's in times past, um, an away team could go, you know, in, in the Champions League in, in the European Cup, sorry, and they could just knock it back to their keeper. The keeper could pick it up, waste a couple of minutes, and and they would, you know, go to those places with with a specific intention of getting a nil nil result um that's not the case anymore um 
And the reason that's not the case is because of the introduction of, obviously, with the, with the rules, with the uh, keepers now not being able to pick it up, and also the away goals rule as well. So just keep it as is. I don't know why this has been brought in. Uh, it hasn't been fully explained to me what the reasoning is behind it. Or the need is, um, you know, to get rid of the away goals rule. For me, it works. Um, I wouldn't, you know, cry great tears if they did abolish it, but I just don't see the point, frankly. Okay. Um, Howard, I guess you have a little bit of a different. <laughs> what makes you think that? Is that? I guess you're Did you're I getting make... the deciding vote, then, aren't you? It would seem I know. we're heading that way. I, I've never disagreed with something someone else has said on this podcast more than what Steve's just said. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. It's not fair. It's as simple as that. It's just pointless. It was brought in, I don't know when it was, it was a long, 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 long time ago, let's say the 70s, 60s, I don't know, 80s, to promote no, attacking well, football. I see no evidence that it's done that, and it's not fair, and that's what it boils down to for me. It is simply not fair if Manchester City and Monaco, and they knew the rules before they're going in, so I'm not complaining about us going out, are 5-5, or 8-8, sorry. What was it? No, 6 all after two legs. Why does one team go... Why are City punished for scoring a lots of goals at home, but not scoring You've as much away? How bad that defensive performance was! I think they should have been punished for how bad they were. <laughs> for sorry, mental, sorry. yeah, for letting that last goal in. Uh, Jesus, yeah. You know, there's a, a flip side. I don't think it promotes attacking football particularly. I don't. I just don't see it's fair. It will lead, as someone put a, a reason. Yeah, that was agreeing with Steve why it's okay. Uh, yesterday on Twitter, it would lead to a lot more extra times probably and penalties and is that a good thing? Do we really want that? Well, yes, because it's fairer. Uh, the thing about having more, you know, it makes it more entertaining. That's not the purpose of football is just to bring in rules that make you, if you want that, just have bigger goals. Have the goalkeepers have to wear huge Kenny Everett foam hands. <laughs> Play with a beach ball. I, you know, these are all equally stupid ways to make the game more entertaining for me. It's just not fair. And someone says, well, you get penalties. Penalties is not perfect, maybe, but it's fairer. It takes skill and mental strength. It's not a lottery like some say it is. So I know I just, I'm perfectly happy with this because I don't see, the reason it was brought in isn't relevant anymore. And it, I don't see why a team that scores more goals in one of the legs, you know, should be should the well, goals should always mean one thing. And this guy on Twitter yesterday who said it's fair, it's, it can take a team from going out of the tournament, one goal can make them go through. And he said this was a good thing. No, that is not a good thing. A goal should always mean one goal. It should never take a team from losing to winning in one kick of the ball. I don't see that. That goes against what I think football is about. So there you go. That's my view. Okay. Well, can I can I just respond by saying it wasn't brought in to promote attacking football. So uh, your 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 main kind of um, you know reason for for not liking it isn't even true anyway, mate. It, it wasn't brought in for that. It was brought in to negate negative football, which is a completely different thing. Mm. Um, you only have to look back at how it used to be. It was god awful. You'd get some like Dynamo Kiev coming over to kind of you know Bayern Munich, and they would just set their stall out for ninety minutes, and they would just look for a nil-nil result, um, and then you know look to kind of take them back to theirs and, and win them at their place. It ended that, 
overnight and that could only be a good thing now granted with the change in the rules of football and, and the fact that goalkeepers can't pick the ball up you know primarily that's the main change we won't see a return to those days but it might edge back towards that it might kind of negativity might seep back in and and the, the mindset of okay we're playing away let's just kind of eke out a nil nil we'll, we'll inevitably creep back into it um, why do we want to return to those days? It was boring. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm not having that whatsoever. And so it, I, does it I not think... does it not promote negative football for the home side instead? Look at City against Real Madrid, nil nil in the semi final. Neither team what Madrid were quite happy with nil nil because they hadn't lost, and City were happy because they hadn't conceded in the way. You know the the away team yeah. hadn't scored, so City neither could go to Madrid and get a one all. And in the end, Pellegrini waved a white flag, so it didn't really matter. Uh, but it, you can flip it the other side. And to be honest, if a football wants to play negative, fine, they're allowed to. If they're against a team with greater resources and that's the way they want to play the game, not not every game is set up for a TV viewer or you know to entertain. I know we want to be entertained, but... But it is, though. I mean, how could you say this? It's like... Football is entertainment. Well, bring it into That's the league. It bring it into the league, then. Let's have some away goals. Let's have greater value in away goals in league games. Fair enough. I, I'm up for that. <laughs> I, <laughs> no, no, do not see how ridiculous that is. I, I don't feel that's ridiculous at all. It's uh, okay. Listen, matched, but it's guys, Asan's going to back you up now, and I'm going to. I'm, I'm going to I cry. Feel, <laughs> I feel I have to. I feel I have to play the referee. Um, <laughs> I, I, I kind of don't agree with Steve. And the reason that I don't agree with you, Steve, is because I understand why it was brought in, but I don't think that it actually worked in the sense that... I think if you look at... The reality is that big teams and small teams, when you go to the away leg of the Champions League, you play more negatively unless you're Pep Guardiola, right? Scoring that away goal is not... You don't go into that tie going, we must get an away goal. Quite the contrary, Mm. guys like Diego Simeone and Jose Mourinho have made careers out of eking out nil-nils in the first leg, in the away leg of the, uh, the, the, the Champions League tie. So I understand why it was brought in. I'm just not convinced that the right now in the modern game, that's what happens. Flip side of that is that the other place where I agree with Howard is just that fundamentally you have to score more goals in the opposition to win a game of football, whether it's over one leg or over two legs. And if you don't score more goals, then you've got to have a penalty shootout. For me, the kind of, it always, it's like Howard said, you know, if you draw 6-6 six, six with somebody, how do they get to go through? Because they scored one more goal at your ground. I mean, yeah, it's... I mean, <laughs> yes, but... That's, that's how it should be. They <laughs> they scored more away from home, so good. You know, credit to them for doing so. And in a result of like you know a, a draw over two legs, they progress. That's so how then it can, should be. So then, can we have like can we have like different goals are worth a different amount? Also, because like if an away goal is worth two, then surely if that away goal is just scored on the counter-attack and it's your only shot on target, it should only be worth, it should be halved or something like that. I mean, it just, to me, it's like, it's arbitrary in the sense that 
if it's brought in to stop people playing negatively and people still play super negatively and then get that away goal and also have the advantage of getting that away goal whilst playing super negatively. Because again, if you're Mourinho or you're Simeone, you back yourself with your top teams to go somewhere, be super negative, nick that away goal on the break and then you're buzzing. Then the, then the pressure is on big time. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, I wanted to agree with you, Steve, but I just, in this instance, I'm, I'm sorry, I just can't. I've got to say, I mean, although I'm being quite trenchant here, like you know, like I said earlier, I wouldn't cry great tears if it was abolished. I just don't go along with the argument that it's unfair because, as Howard said at the off, both teams know what, what, what the score is before the game. They both know what the rules are. And, you know, I don't see it as being fundamentally unfair at all. I, I, I think there's a lot of sense in it. Um, and personally, I prefer it to stay. Uh, so, um, I, I think, you know, my crazy theory is you go to extra time and you have to take a player off every three minutes. <laughs> That'll make it entertaining. Once it's once it's four aside on a full size pitch, then you'll get you'll get the entertainment you want. So <laughs> I don't want silly entertainment. <laughs> I just I just want you know like a team to go away from home and show a bit of adventure, a bit of ambition. And I, and I completely agree with you, Sam. You know we have seen examples Mourinho and Simeone, but that's not across the board. We also see sides who go away from home, a very tricky game, wherever it may be, let's let's say kind of, you know, Seville or something like that, uh, whereas they would like just show up shop, they're thinking, no, let's go out and let's let's make a game of this. This is our chance. This is our better chance to progress by getting something tonight than it will be we're at, at our place. So, yeah, there's two sides to it. Okay, fair enough. Right, um, let's have a little look back at um, the Week in City World. Um Steve, you weren't uh-huh. on the Arsenal review. So can I want to talk to you about the Arsenal game. Um, how did you rate the performance? And I've listened to a lot of podcasts this week, and it's quite interesting to listen to people's takes on what Guardiola did in terms of sticking Fernandinho in at centre-back in such a big game. And I've heard very opposing views. So Jonathan Wilson basically said that, you know, that's that's Guardiola doing his classic Guardiola overthinking. That's his big weakness. That's the reason that we probably won't retain the league because whenever he, and that's maybe why we won't win the Champions League as well, because whenever he comes up in a big game or, you know, if something feels like it's got pressure on it, that he overthinks. On the other side, I've seen people, uh, unheard people in the media say that it was... Uh, a show of why Guardiola is at a different level to other coaches in Europe because he looks for solutions and he doesn't care about how unorthodox the solution feels on paper. If he thinks that solution will help him get the best result, he goes with that and he should be applauded for that. So where are you, Steve, on on the Arsenal game in general and those specific changes that you made? Right. On the Arsenal game, I fall into the latter camp. I thought it worked a treat. I thought it was very clever. Um, I think he absolutely has Arsenal's number, Pep Guardiola. Um, I think if you ask Pep, you know, would you be happy to play Arsenal every week? He'd say yes. And, you know, give me the title <laughs> right now. Um, but in a general sense, I completely agree that, and I've said this on the pod before, Pep's 
fundamental flaw, actually fundamental is not the right word there, just is is the only flaw that I have a problem with, with Pep Guardiola, is that he does tend to overthink for the big games or when he's under pressure, exactly as you said. Um, and more pertinently as well, it doesn't apply in this instance, but um, if he comes up against a team who has previously bettered him, that gets under his skin and then for the next game he does tend to go, you know, throw a curveball. Um, and that can be his undoing, as we've seen with, with Liverpool in the past. Uh, but in this instance, it worked a treat. I mean, City's performance was excellent. Um, there was only going to be one winner in it throughout. Um, City had the better of Arsenal throughout. And I've seen a lot of criticism of Arsenal for their second half performance and the way they were kind of encamped. Um, and, you know, kind of seen some Arsenal fans saying they played like they were kind of non-league underdogs. City made them look like non-league underdogs and more so... Pep Guardiola's tactics made them look like non-league underdogs. So it worked wholly. Um, and, yeah, as regards to the game itself, um, I just saw positives from it. I thought the game management as well was equally as important as the tactics. Um, City, you know, I, I wrote about it this last week where when we cons- when we scored so early against Newcastle and then kind of went into complacency mode, um, that was a big mistake and Newcastle were always going to come back at City, and sure enough, when they roused themselves, we couldn't then get go through the gears again. We couldn't change tack then. Um, here against Arsenal, took the early lead, kept our foot on their throats, had a disallowed goal, had a stonewall penalty turned down, then Arsenal, from nowhere, equalised. Now, that could really get to any side. You know, they've, they'd learned their lessons, and yet still they've been punished for it. And so what City did was just stay patient. Mm. Just kept firmly applying the pressure, believing in what Pep had told him, believing in the positional sense where Pep said, right, if you play that list today, you're going to win. And they did. And I was really greatly encouraged by it all. Okay, excellent. Um, Howard, do you want to... Do you do you feel the same as Steve? Like, do you feel more positive or less positive as the week has gone on Yeah, about the performance... No, yeah, as I said already, probably both. You know, both the games this week. Once you actually step back, you're a lot more positive than how it felt at the time. Mm. Probably because you're just nervous and stressful, and you don't know what could come yeah. around the corner in games that we really had to win. In a way, I hate hate saying that any games must win, as you well know. But you know, these were not far off. They were. We really could do with winning these games, and it, yeah, so it was stressful. Uh, stressful chasing another team and that's probably made me at the time view the performance worse than when you've stepped back and evaluated it I read somewhere and I don't know if it's true you know I can't think of another occasion that you know it was over a year since we conceded a goal in the first quarter of an hour of a league game Uh, now there may be 17 and that might be just one of those Twitter stats but we don't concede many early goals so that says a lot about how where this team is at anyway, in you know just generally in the last year. Uh, but you have to keep coming back to the fact that Arsenal did not have a shot in the second half. Uh, no team, yeah, and nor did Everton a few days later. So yeah, they say that league titles are won from the defence. Doesn't have to be that way. I think they like the Arsenal Invincibles only kept a, you know a few clean sheets, so they did it through attacking prowess. 
don't think those rules always apply, but City went about 11 games without a clean sheet, you know, 10, 11 games or something. And it, you know, it affects results. This solidity that seems to have come off the back of a very bad result uh, is very welcoming indeed, I think. Yeah, I think I'm pretty damn positive. I mean, it's all about the results, but the results were deserved when you actually step back and look at them. There were two, two gritty professional and dominant performances even even if they didn't feel like it at the time I think we get so used to to winning big and winning easy that when it's not big and it's not easy the natural instinct is to go well we weren't that good and that's why it wasn't big and it wasn't easy Um, but actually it's unsustainable and unrealistic to think that you'll win big and easy every time you come up against a quote unquote lesser team. Um, Steve, I just wanted to touch upon what Howard talked about there with the the kind of the defensive solidity that the last two games seem to have shown. I mean, notwithstanding the set-piece goal that Arsenal um, scored, they don't really create a lot. Everton, although they um, move the ball from back to front quite well at times and manage to get themselves into dangerous areas just outside of our penalty area, we defend as a unit, we defend really well. For you, I'm going to kind of bring you back to the left back thing, just from a personnel and a team selection point of view. How do you see the? How do you compare and contrast this last few games with Laporte at left back and a, basically moving him out of cent- the center of defense to put him at left back? In comparison to earlier in the season where we were playing with Zinchenko or with Delph or with Danilo, do you fall in the... In fact, I'm not going to lead you up any garden path. You <laughs> tell me how you compare and contrast the different players who have played at left-back and how you would deal with the rest of the season. Right, well, I I think this is possibly the most difficult question I've had to ask, uh, answer on uh, since I've been doing this podcast. I, it's really difficult to answer. Um Laporte has impressed me immeasurably at left-back. He did against Liverpool. Uh, he did on Wednesday night. I thought he was excellent Wednesday night. Um, but then you, you lose out on having Laporte at centre-back. And unquestionably, he's one of the top two centre-backs in the country. Um, so I just don't know where I fall there. Uh, Zinchenko, Delph and Danilo have all offered some good things. And also showed a lot of bad things too to their game. Um, I'm talking about you know, specifically this season um, and at left back. So I can't really pick out one of those three and say that's the guy to go with from now until May. Mm-hmm. I really can't. Possibly Danilo because he has showed more flashes of excellence than Del Zinchenko has in that role. Um, but he's also had some stinkers as well. Um, you know, he's stung the place out a couple of times. So that's why it's such a really difficult question to answer because my answer really would be Laporte. But that's ridiculous. Mm. I don't want to I don't want to shift Laporte out and left back for the next kind of three months. I don't want that to be the case, so I don't know. Howard, is there an argument that actually if you look at the types of goals that we concede they're all pretty rubbish goals to concede. And that if you, that our attack is so good that 
that you can that actually what Pep has seen is you know what I just need to stick four defenders at the back and be as solid as possible in the back in the defensive line and if I do that I'll win more games than if I leave a corner of the defense as a weakness that the opposition can target and to further that do you think that our left back position has been targeted this season? Have you seen teams target it? And do you think the Laporte move is a reaction to that? Good God. <laughs> two, two, two easy questions for me. Uh, I don't know what Pep thinks, so that makes the first question tough. I, I think we're all set in our ways. We're just used to, I'm still in 1990s mode. And it's taken a lot. It's taken us a lot of time to understand pass a goalkeeper passing it out from the back, and it's taken a lot of time for us to understand that there's other options besides a flat back four. Yeah, you know, where everyone knows their position. I, I don't. I don't know. I, honestly, I don't. I, I think you may have to answer this one yourself. I have our goals considered been rubbish? Well, all goals are considered a rubbish. Uh, half of them have been from set pieces, apparently. So. Has that really got much to do with... That's got nothing to do with formation because from a set piece, everyone should be in their position anyway, marking and so on. So I don't think we've conceded that many rubbish goals. I mean, they may be rubbish, but there haven't been that many of them. Uh, so I don't think we need to specifically say we need to go back to a flat back four because, you know, the way Pep thinks is that it's a very fluid anyway. So it, it's never a fluid format. It's never... A pep formation is never stuck in its ways in a way. It's different in and out of possession. Uh, mm. Have we targeted the left back? No, I, I've not I've not noticed it. I, I'll, I'll throw it back to you. I think people realised quickly. There was a time early on in the Everton match, I saw there were a few spaces about 10 minutes in. I saw a bit of gaps between Laporte and the centre of defence, but that, was, that quickly went away. I've not seen any team that's gone time and time and time down that side or if they have it hasn't lasted long because I don't think we've really been super exposed despite the fact we haven't had a proper left back there you mm. disagree I, I think or? we've been targeted I, I do think we've been targeted um, primarily in the Champions League so there, there could be an argument maybe to you know, station the port there in the Champions League mm. um, and in the league you know go with kind of Danilo Zinchenko or Delph I think there's a little bit of Champions League at play in the current selections of Laporte at left back. I think that if you've got a concern that Mendy isn't going to be available for for the Champions League, I think you, I think there has to be an acknowledgement that at the very highest levels, Inchenko and Delft will get exposed, and probably Danilo will get exposed as well. Um, so you need a much more stable defensive presence um, on the left hand side. I also think there probably is an element of Pep just being sick of goals coming down that side and feeling like even if, you know, whether it's the Zinchenko miscontrol or whatever it is, and people can say, well, he's a midfielder and he should control that ball and it's a basic error and it's not really because he's an attacking midfielder playing in that position that he makes that error. I think that there probably is... Um, a kind of mental aspect to being asked to play a position that isn't your play position, whether it's Danilo, whether it's Inchenko, whether it's Delph. I think that mental aspect can lead to 
basic errors that under yeah. other circumstances you just wouldn't make. I think what Pep has probably found is that Laporte at left back is probably more natural than the other three guys. And when he puts him there, he doesn't make those basic errors because he's a defender first and foremost. Um, and he's a left-sided defender first and foremost. So all of the things that he's being asked to do, he just na- he can naturally do them. They're not unnatural to him because he naturally covers the left-hand side. So for all those reasons, I can see why, for example, come Sunday against Chelsea, we see Laporte line up at, at left-back again because Pep looks at it and he goes, well, you know, Willian or Pedro play on that side and if I stick Zinchenko or Delph out there, they're getting rinsed. If I stick Danilo out there... Maybe he'll do all right against William. The Brazilian on Brazilian thing might be a good thing. He might get rinsed as well. So I can I can kind of see why he would why he would go go back to go back to or stick to that kind of more of a, de, a solid defensive in fullback. And I, I keep saying like solid back four, but actually it's just more about the, the fullbacks being defensively sound. Um, as opposed to having fullbacks who are in the attacking third are amazing, but maybe aren't as defensively sound. Can I just uh, put in and say that um, Everton, without a shadow of a doubt, targeted the left back position on Wednesday? Of course they did. They bought every yeah. every every long every every single one of Pickford's kicks was aimed for Calvert Lewin, who was stood on top of Laporte. Now, whether that's because they think that because it's Everton and not Arsenal that Guardiola is going to go with Delphor, is going to go with Zinchenko. I suspect that that's what happened. I suspect that Marco Silva's looked at it and he's gone, yeah, I think that they're going to fancy being progressive. They know that if they win, they'll go top of the league. They're going to pick a very attacking formation. He's bet on Pep picking one of those two guys. And so he's gone, right, every, we stick Calvert-Lewin on that side and we all the goal kicks, all the long kicks, they go to that side. Um, so yeah, I mean, for me, it's been targeted lots of times this season. Um, not, I don't think incessantly though. I've not seen that myself. I, I, it's natural. Every manager is going to lit. Every opposition manager is going to look at that position. You know, when they're setting up, prepping for the game, mm. that that will be their first thought. You know, we go for that. So yeah, totally normal. But I don't think it's been ultra successful. Uh, I can't think of. I mean, Southampton goal was was Zinchenko caught in possession. Have I remembered it right? When we won three one, uh, I think Palace's third goal came down our left, where it flicked. You know, ended up in a penalty, but there was huge amounts of space down that side. But you know, I've not I've not seen a huge rush of goals, and I've not seen ninety minutes of. I think a lot of teams have, you know, may have started with that attitude, but I don't think they've done it for ninety minutes because. It hasn't been as, you know, it's not been a disastrous area for us. It's problematic, obviously. I mm. think a lot of teams have stopped concentrating on it as games have progressed because it hasn't been as productive as they thought it would. Or maybe they just don't get the ball enough to really have a go that many times. And that's, you know, like Everton, how many times did they get to go? Yeah, you've got to have a lot of the ball to keep hammering away at that at a weak area. And for most teams, they just don't get that opportunity. I completely agree. And I also, like you said, we just don't concede that many goals. Um, so it's a very small sample size that you're that you're yeah. looking from or that you're trying to extrapolate exactly. some type of conclusion from anyway. Um, okay, listen, is this run of games helping 
City. And on the flip side, has the fact that Liverpool got a two-week holiday in the sun in Dubai whilst we were playing cup games and winning them, is that hindering them? Um, Steve, I definitely have the sensation that a month ago, uh, everybody felt like uh, the narrative was generating that Liverpool are favourites. And one of the reasons that they're favourites is because they're going to be able to concentrate on the Premier League. They're out of all the domestic cup competitions. And, you know, it kind of is what it is. And it gives them an advantage when City have got the fixture pileup of the FA Cup and the Champions League. Um how do you feel about the the kind of last few weeks and just moving forward what that what that means the fact that we have more games than them I I saw it as a positive and I I continue to see it as a positive um to be playing consistent amount of games as opposed to having these lengthy breaks uh, in the middle of a season it can be counterproductive I thought that at the time it's played out that way and I was proven absolutely right. <laughs> and the, the reason that I say that is because I love to be right because it happens about once every 18 months. And <laughs> in this instance, I was seeing it on Twitter and I was seeing Liverpool fans almost, well, they were celebrating the fact that they were out of cup competitions. I said, oh, this is great. City are going to play all these games. We could have all these breaks. I was like, no, you're seeing this completely the wrong way around. Now, as you get to the tail end of the season and, you know, the fixtures start to really congest, then, of course, it, things could flip then and it could be the other side then. Um, and it really does come down to City keeping as many players fit and fresh as possible and Pep rotating as much as possible. Um, I grant you that. But at this stage of the season, you want to be playing week in, week out. And it was a really bad decision for Liverpool to go to Dubai. They went to Dubai, they came back and they played on an icy pitch in freezing conditions, having not played competitively for, what was it, 10 days? 11 days, apparently. 11 days. And then, they, you know, people were surprised that they got caught with their pants down. You know, it's it, it stood to reason it was always going to be the case. Mm. Um, and, and furthermore... The fact that we are in the cup, cup competitions, it can be seen as a positive as regards to rotation because what we're doing is we're utilising our squad, squad. We're giving them game time. So if we do encounter an injury, let's say it's a Champions League semi-final or, sorry, Howard, I'm going to use the, the words, a must-win ah! kind of league, <laughs> <laughs> must-win league game, you know, three from the end of the season and, God forbid, two days beforehand, David Silva comes down with a flu, then... We've got these players who have get, you know accumulating game time. So, yeah, it's a positive, and it's played out that way. Absolutely spot on. I think the thing, the point that you've just made about um, using the squad and utilizing the squad is huge. I think one of the issues that Liverpool are currently facing is that you know Klopp did very, very, very little rotation in the first third, first half of the season. It was a very fixed lineup of the front three, the back four, and the midfield three. There was maybe one that would chop and change in the midfield line. Um, and in the big, big games, he, he swapped uh, Alexander-Arnold for for Gomez and stuck Lovren in the middle. But other than that, there was very little rotation. Um, and I think that the issue with that now is, for example... You look at the uh, the game against West Ham and he brings Shakiri on with half an hour to go. Shakiri has almost no impact. And I think that's because it's he's not played enough. You know, one of the things that we're really lucky with 
is that, you know, when players step in and out, the system remains the same. And it's very rare that a player steps in and you go, he doesn't really know what he's doing here. I mean, it happens from time to time, but very rarely does it happen. Um, whereas I feel with the Liverpool squad, there is a little bit of the fact that a lot of those players haven't played a lot of football together um, in competitive matches. I don't know if that rhythm will be there. Um, Howard, how do you see this week? I mean, I, I chose to preview Liverpool Bournemouth. I feel as though it's been a big week in the title race. We've talked a lot about Liverpool, but I think there's a reason for that. It makes sense this week. Um, and so for that reason, I wanted to, to preview Liverpool Bournemouth. Now, I caveat this by saying Bournemouth have lost the 11 on the bounce on the road or something like that. Their on the road record is something like scored one, conceded a billion goals. <laughs> They're utter trash on the road. Um, does that mean that we should just forget about this game and to follow on from that what does that say about Eddie Howe? Uh, firstly can I just I have vague memories that City went out 2-0 at home to Middlesbrough in the FA Cup after a jaunt to, to Abu Dhabi for a week absolutely absolutely that may or may not have happened but it's in my memory that it did so it did happen we did we, well we certainly went out in a uh, in a cup competition having been to Abu Dhabi and I don't think it's happened once I think it's happened a couple of times yeah. they get up and once with Pep and once with Pellegrini plenty of beer on that uh, playing back as well allegedly <laughs> <laughs> I kid you not uh, probably a bit more professional now anyway uh, yeah I've kind of the only caveat of full Liverpool Bournemouth is you know said to someone if Bournemouth are stubborn and it gets to half an hour or so without a goal. You can see it getting very, you know, frustrated, the crowd getting frustrated. That's the only route to me uh, for Bournemouth getting something out of this. But no, I honestly, even everything that's gone, you know, I expect them to beat Leicester, I expect them to beat West Ham. Bournemouth on the road, I just don't see it, to be honest, at all. And that's not just my city pessimism. I just think there has to be some response from Liverpool. Yeah, and Bournemouth are not the same side away from home. I remember them, might be last season, they beat, well, they just went to Chelsea and won 3 0. You know, they do, they do have the players, but yeah, there's such a strange, just yeah, another team in the Premier League, such a strange side, uh, home side much of the time. I, Eddie Howe, we've discussed before, he's suited to that club, but he doesn't have the resources, but that is a terrible record. How can you have such a massive disparity? Yeah. I mean, I understand that you have disparities between home and away results. It happens for the all managers, all clubs. But the disparity, even if you put aside the results, I've watched a lot of Bournemouth. Don't ask me why, maybe because I like Eddie Howe, but I will watch them whenever they're, they're on the TV. And if Anyway, my point is, they look like a totally different team home and away. When I see Bournemouth play at home, I always think, man, they're so good. They're so, you know, yeah. everything they do, they do at such a high level. And then you watch them away from home and it's like, it's almost like the manager's going, yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Don't worry cool. about it. You know, have a rest or something like that. But let's not forget that, you know, Liverpool have already won 4-0 at Bournemouth. I mean, if you knew the, if you knew the reason between home and away, you'd be a very, very rich man, Hayson, if you're not <laughs> already. It's either psychological or, and I've not watched enough of Bournemouth to know, he changes his approach to games, the manager. I can't think it's uh, 
either two. Is he playing the same formation, same players? I assume he's doing very similar lineups. So I, d- I don't know. Do you know? Um, no. I mean, I, I don't think that I. I've read a couple of theories. Steve, I'll throw one over to you. Um, I read somewhere this week that Eddie Howe's biggest problem that he's been a little bit too loyal to a collection of players that have been with him since League One. Um, guys like Andrew Sermon, a lot of players in the defence and in midfield who have been there a while and who may be at home in, you know, that the, 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 with the quality of the players around them and the familiarity of being at home, they can get away with it, but they go away from home and they simply get exposed as being Championship League One quality players playing in the Premier League. Is that an unfair thing to say about a team that have been in the Premier League for so long? No, because it's absolutely true. It, you can clearly see it as well. I've, I've heard this theory myself I've, and um, I've read up on it. and Yeah, it, it plays out. I mean... I would say that if you talk about a manager and and you're saying, right, this is his floor, he's too loyal. I mean, doesn't that say a lot about Eddie Howe? Um, you know, he's clearly a decent guy and a very good manager. Um, and you want him to do well. But unfortunately, you, you're looking at Bournemouth this season and it's very similar to, to seasons gone by as well. They are just so schizophrenic. You do not know where you are with him. I'm exactly with Howard. I can't see him getting anything at Anfield on, on this weekend. Not a chance. But you you look through the results. I mean, you said there about their, their away performances and their away results this season. But I'm just looking at them now, and there's two in October where they won 4-0 away at Watford and was it 4-1 away at uh, Fulham? <laughs> uh, 3-0, sorry, away at Fulham. So it's like, okay, we've we've addressed this problem now. We, we know what, what we're doing now, right? Okay, okay. oh, well, we've we've lost narrowly away at Newcastle. That's fair enough. Oh, no, now we're just getting battered left, right and centre for the next three months. What goes on with him? My, my, my view on Eddie Howe is that he's an exceptional manager. There's a lot to like about him. As we just said, then, if, if, you know, if his flaws are he's too loyal, that could be seen as a positive as well, or at least virtuous. Um... He is in the right place. Like Howard said, he's, he's perfectly positioned there at Bournemouth. You can't imagine him going to a top six side because he's just a streaky manager. He's proven this time after time. Mm. You look at Bournemouth and for five weeks or six weeks, they're brilliant. And then for six or seven weeks, they are atrocious. At home, they're brilliant. Away, they're atrocious. Until he addresses that, he's going nowhere. Now, I think he's... Uh... Oh. Howard? Please do interrupt me, I enjoy that. No, just say the team that won 4-0 last week against Chelsea and were kind of, well, don't matter. Yeah. Exactly. I think, look, for me, I think that um, maybe this is a cruel thing to say. Maybe I'm speculating. I don't think Eddie Howe is ruthless enough to be a top manager. Mm. I think that's reading, this week kind of reading up on on his arc and who he is and, and the kind of guy he is. I just feel like to be really elite, you've got to be a bit more ruthless than he is. I think that it's all good and well having loyalty. It's all good and well having comfort zones that you like to operate within. But, you know, everything has a shelf life. And I think the this kind of, you know, 
I would like to see Eddie Howe do something, whether it is, for example, tomorrow going to Liverpool and not being the beautiful, expansive Bournemouth that get turned over by four or five goals, but saying to his players, don't get turned over today. Play football, but don't be stupid and don't get turned over. Because you feel like, I feel like, and it's interesting the two teams that you picked out as big away results, Steve, because again, like you look at those sides and you go, you know what? Eddie Howe could probably almost make the argument, yeah, we're better than these and we can play our way and we yeah. can beat them. And that's why they end up getting those results. But I wonder whether when he comes up against a Liverpool, a City, a United, a Spurs, whatever, that he's a little too... I don't want to say that he throws the game, but that he almost... And I've argued this is a virtue in the past, so I am absolutely contradicting myself and being a hypocrite, but maybe he does look at those big games and he goes, well, I want you to play this way regardless of who the opposition are, and fine, we might get turned over, but... This is the system that's ingrained into you as a squad, and I'm never going to deviate from it because it means that at home against the teams around us will always be better than them. So I always saw that as a virtue. I'm beginning to see it now less as a virtue because I think the away results are systemically terrible. Um, and where Eddie Howe is a manager who in the past has been really held up as being progressive and being lauded. I think he's very much in danger of very quickly becoming Brendan Rodgers, who went from being a manager who was very highly respected and who was lauded as playing progressive football and being intelligent and, you know, being a modern coach, a mm. thoroughly modern coach, to becoming a little bit of a buffoon during his time at Liverpool. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I'd I, like to see Eddie Howe show a little bit of... um ruthlessness um, you see I, I, I agree with every single word of that and yet they're 10th they're above Leicester they're above West Ham it's it, it kind of you know it it is a I, flaw but it works I, it works but I feel that once you I mean it's one of those how do I again this is a double edged sword right because the conversation can go both ways but once you've got yourself there and you can do that and you've done it for four years or five years or however many years you've been doing it for, I would expect a really smart guy to begin to look at the flaws and to begin to look at ways to deal with some of those flaws. And I think the concern <coughs> is that maybe that, like I said, those flaws are becoming more ingrained and more pronounced rather than feeling like... Bournemouth are making some type and Eddie Howe is making some type of progress to deal with those flaws. Because again, like I say, it's, it's, a, it's not that big a thing to look at the top six and go, look, fine, you can, you can write off 18 points away from home <coughs> on the basis that you're going away to the top six. Or you can take the flip side of point of view, which is that every point that you get there is a huge point because it's a point that you previously haven't got. And therefore, if you just look at those six games in isolation and begin to approach those slightly differently, even that shows on some level progress. Um, I, yeah, I agree. I, I think in a general sense as well, we can kind of look at a mirroring between Bournemouth and Eddie Howe and Charlton and Alan Kirbishley. Because uh, something you, you said there, what really kind of um, you know, picked up on where 
it's kind of like they are at that stage now where they do need to go to that next level. They do need to kind of change their approach. And and Charlton didn't do that. Charlton were always held up as, you know, there's, there's even a model named after them, the Charlton Absolutely. model of, of being so sensible and pragmatic and, you know, incrementally building and bringing in the right players who fitted the profile and all the rest of it. And that worked a treat. But at some point you thought, hang on a minute, you've been in, a ch- in the Premier League now for like, whatever it was, four or five seasons. You're bringing in all this revenue. You need to start showing some ambition now because it, it's not sustainable, this model. It will kind of, you know, all it takes is one bad season and you're gone. And will you come back? And so the same can possibly be said of Bournemouth now, where, you know, they're a lovely club and they play lovely football and they've got a lovely manager and they do things the right way. But do they need to start being a bit of a bastard? Just all around the board, you know, mm. like right through the club and the manager, do they need to start being a bit snide now? Um and just, you know, looking above them and showing a bit more, I don't want to say ambition, because, you know, Christ, they've showed a lot of ambition and they've been fantastic. Um, but just change their approach somewhat now, maybe. Um, well, they've, they've even bought well, Steve. So, like, I think that if you look at, like, Nathan Ake or David Brooks or Lewis Cook, or, you know, he's, yeah. he's identified smart players, obviously with the exception of... Uh, Ibe. Well, he's he's identified players. He's worked with them. He's improved them. He's integrated them into his squad. So much of what he does ticks modern coach boxes in such a big way. And yet still, I kind of, again, I agree with you in the sense that I'm repeating myself, but it's just a little tweak. It's not even about when you say be more ruthless, be more of a bastard. For me, it's just like be more of a winner. Like, be a little bit more like Pep or Mourinho in terms of going, like, it doesn't matter what the game is. Got to find a way to win this game. And if you want to be like Guardiola and you want to say, like, I am going to play only my system, then actually be ruthless enough to identify those players who away from home just can't do it because they're not at the right level and go to the board and go, you know what, let's replace these three players. And I appreciate that that might feel like a drastic thing for Bournemouth to do. But hey, Eddie Howe has managed to identify players for good fees that he can work with, that he can slip into his first team. So it's not like they, they're they not City or even Everton for that matter, where they begin to think about 40, 50 million pound players exactly. for every yeah, yeah. position. They can look at 10, 15, 20 million pound players and they can incrementally increase the quality within their squad that way. Um, Having said all of that, (laughs) I'm going to be the optimist amongst the two of you, because I know that you both feel, and you've said that, you know, Bournemouth are going to get slapped. Yeah. I think why I'm not so hot on that is because I'm, maybe I'm building a narrative. But the narrative that I'm building is that what Bournemouth are good at is attacking. The one thing that they they have got good is they've got really good attacking players. I think where Liverpool are a bit nervy right now is defensively. I don't think they look defensively solid. I think, you know, both collectively and individually, they have a little bit of a problem. Um, and the kind of transition from defence to attack is just not working. And I think that, you know... Bournemouth have to do one thing, which is really important. They have to get through 15, 20 minutes of that game and not concede a goal. But if they can get through 15, 20 minutes and not concede a goal, then Liverpool have got 
more of a glass jaw, I believe, than this Liverpool City side, uh, than, than this City side have. And I think that if, you know, again, I'm building a narrative, but if 20, 25, 30, it's nil-nil, Anfield is not going to be rocking. It's going to be, you know, pooing its proverbial kecks. Um, and so I can see some type of crazy 1-1 or 2-2 playing out because I do think that Liverpool are rocking a little bit. Um, do you want to both tell me that I'm mad? I, I think, think that's taken correct. as red, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Lads, nice tempting fate. I, I, I'm tempting fate, you see, by saying this. I know. I, I think know. you're correct in saying about Bournemouth's attack, which is why I think it'll be 4-1 and not 4-0. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Thanks for the vote of confidence. Okay, <laughs> listen. Um, Chelsea, how do we approach the game on Sunday? More particularly, how do we approach team selection issues? What I want you to talk about, Steve, I'm going to start with you, is, and I did this, I think, on the preview for Everton with Howard, so it'd be interesting to see how you view this. Um, I want you to go through the squad and pick the form players that you think must play uh, on Sunday. Oof. And what position they actually play in on Sunday. Okay, well, obviously, Edison is a, a no-brainer. Um, I would play Walker, although he is still finding his, his way back into any semblance of form. Uh, he remains our best right back. And I think we will be playing four at the back um, against Chelsea. I, I, I should say as well, because I think someone asked on Twitter um, what Pep might have learned from the defeat to Chelsea. I don't think there's a great deal to learn from that. I think if you look at that game, uh, City had 61% of the possession. Um, they created the most, I think it was 14 shots. Um, they created the better chances. It was like it was just a sucker punch uh, of a game, really. Uh, and if we play in that similar fashion this weekend, we should prevail. So returning to the lineup, um, I don't see much difference really between the lineup uh, at Stamford Bridge and the lineup at the Etihad, regardless of the lineups we've been seeing in recent weeks and okay. regardless of current form. So Edison in goal, Kyle Walker right back for the reasons I stated. John Stones. Um, who is coming back into kind of proceedings now? As to as Otamendi, and I was quick uh, critical of Otamendi recently, but um, you know he, he's performed well in the last couple of weeks. So uh, Laporte at left back. Well, will that be the case? I'd be interested to hear what you two think about that. To be honest, I really don't know what what he's got planned as regards to left back. Um, by the way, I'm playing four three three here. Yeah. Um, Fernandinho, Alden, uh, David Silva, and De Bruyne in midfield. Um, I personally, and I think maybe this is what you were kind of alluding to in regards to form. There's a possibility there of Bernardo Silva and De Bruyne. Mm. Uh, David has been off the pace somewhat recently, and that's becoming a growing concern for me. Um, and Sterling Sane. Uh, with, with Aguero up front, that would be my starting eleven. Okay, um, Howard. To touch upon the the David Silva question, would you start him against Chelsea on Sunday? Wow. So you want do you want one of my eclectic lineups again then to answer that question? 
just, just well, 11 players. I'm, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'm just curious individually to a few positions. So I'm just going to ask you for those particular uh, positions, um, who you would choose. Yeah, I would. Um, I'd, so, I'd rest him, yeah. So you wouldn't play David Silva. Um, at left back, would you play Laporte or would you play Danilo? Yeah. Or would you do something No, else? I'd stick to the same two, last two games. Keep it the same. Okay. Um, would you play Stones or would you go back to Fernandinho in the in the centre back role? I suspect both. So uh, against Arsenal, was it Otamendi with with Fernandinho moving back? Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I, I have a suspicion. I'd be quite happy with it. It'll do that again. Uh, but I think Stones may be instead of Otamendi. But then that's just why, who knows? <laughs> I will decide on that. <laughs> well, no, actually, you know, why does Otamendi play over Stones? Uh, physical presence? Is Higuain going to be, you know, the great header yeah. of the ball? Will he yeah. go with Otamendi instead? Is he a physical presence? Is he better at headers? I don't know. Is it just this this kind of assumption we have that he is? Uh, but basically, whichever one, I think he may go with that Fernandinho uh, thing again. Interesting. Would you pick Aguero or Jesus? Uh, Jesus. I, th- I did feel that Aguero was absolutely dead on his feet by the end of Everton. Mm. Uh, so that's my reasoning. Fair enough. I'd go for Aguero because he's fired up to hell at the moment. You can see. As to Jesus, to be fair, um, that's possibly the most encouraging aspect of Manchester City right now is Aguero and Jesus both being in decent form and both revved up to hell. They really want it, both of them. Uh, and, and I mean, just looking from the outside in, they seem to be kind of supportive of each other. You know, there's certainly no kind of aspects of any begrudgement of having to sit out yeah. at any time. So that is absolutely, and I touch of wood when I say this, actually generally out, uh, absolutely something where we can say that's, you know, barring injury, of course, that's an entirely positive scenario until the season's end. Um, the two centre forwards. Uh, so, subplot as well that Aguero and David Luiz obviously are at war with each other. Yes. So yeah, I yeah, don't yeah, know yeah. if that's a good or a bad thing. Good. Very much well, a good thing. Not if he kicks out at him again, it isn't. He's got away, got away yeah, with it once, it, didn't get away with it another time, I don't think. But Both times are funny. Funny, yeah, but if it affects the result, <laughs> if it affects our season, yeah. not that funny. I know, yeah. I know. But it's Louise, yeah. just to see. If it. he gets away with it, absolutely hilarious. <laughs> we are like a bit of Argentinian shit Um Okay, so the last kind of selection conversation that I want to have with the two of you. Um, in my opinion, Ilkay Gundogan has been our most informed and consistent number eight over the last few weeks. Steve, do you agree with that? And if you do agree with that, is he then the first number eight that you pick on Sunday? And does that make the team selection a lot more challenging? Or have I overstated his impact in recent weeks? Um, I I didn't name him then in my start at 11. Um, He has been very impressive. He's been uh, arguably our most informed player. Um. I'm just as happy to see him as a number six, to be honest. He's, he's played some of his best games for us as number six. Uh, he's free of injuries now, as as Howard said before. It takes a long time to fully let that go, relinquish that. Um, and he, he hasn't let us down. He's playing really well. Uh, I, I would always rather 
Bernardo Silva in there than Gundogan. So, which is why I'm not saying he's our, our best number eight. Um, I think Bernardo Silva, um, you lose a certain something when you play him out wide and when you play him central. Um, I just think he's, oh God, an incredible player for us this season. Um, and, and you're hardly going to drop Kevin De Bru- a fit Kevin De Bruyne. So, it's hard for him to get in there and make an impact. And yet, when he's done, he has. So, you know, he's made 12 starts this year, four goals. Um, some really good performances. Looking confident. I love his little dinks over the top. I, I think that's become a, somewhat of a trademark and City fans are loving that. Um, and he's influential and impactful. So, yeah, it's it's been delightful to see. I still wouldn't have him in my starting eleven now. Fair enough. I couldn't disagree more. But okay. um, Howard, do you want to um, be fair to Ilke Gundogan or is it yeah. going to be left to me no, to I, be fair? I'm team, I was fair. I'm team Asan all the way. So I was fair. To be, to be fair, I was fair. <laughs> to be fair, to be fair. <laughs> to be fair, I was fair. Okay. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, uh, just a little side thing. We've been in a pub talk for years. We've been saying little dink, dinked chips over the top like Messi does. Which obviously aren't that easy. Are oh, the key to breaking down low blocks. Uh, yep. And Ilkay seems rather good at them. Uh, so you know he's even got that little skill. But no, he is. Mm. The question you've posed is correct. Right now, at this time, he's the one that goes into that position because Kevin De Bruyne. Well, there's room for Kevin De Bruyne anyway. David Silva's yep. not playing terribly. You know, we said that he set up a goal. He set up a chance that Gundogan hit the bar with but he's not at the top of his game Gundogan is uh, and he's for me goes ahead of yeah goes ahead of David Silva and Bernardo Silva as well well Bernardo Silva can come centrally if I do that that Fernandinho thing yeah <laughs> so let's put them all let's put them all in play two wide players get Jesus up front and, and batter them it's, it's, it's easy this football manager likes mm. so Hold on, no, no, but there's there's something in what you just said there because maybe that maybe there's an argument that Guardiola looks at the form of Gundogan and goes, he's got to play, mm. and then he goes, well, if I want to play, if I want to play the two wingers and I want to play Bernardo and KDB as well, then I move Ferner into the back line. And I play Gundo as the nominal number six, and I play Bernardo and KDB, and then I play Sterling and Sane in front of them, and then I can have my centre forward. At the start of this conversation, I was convinced that it would be 4 3 3 with Stones and and, and Otamendi all apart at the back, that Pep isn't going to move Ferner back there. But actually, kind of looking at the way Gundo's been playing and, and this conversation, it wouldn't surprise me if he. If he did the the, the Fernandinho thing again, uh, okay. Last thing, I'd like you both to predict a score for me, so I can wrap up this very long Friday show. Um, Mr. Hawking, will City win on Sunday? Yeah, I, I, we do get a bit Mark Lawrenson, don't we? That we never ever back our team to lose, do we? You know, Mark Lawrence has never predicted Liverpool yeah. to lose in his weekly predictions. But then again, whenever we ever played a team that we think is better, you know, maybe uh, Barcelona or something, but you'd still then go for a draw because you, you feel you have to. Uh, mm-hmm. This is not one of those occasions anyway. I, I think back to, you know, we came from behind against Chelsea to win 2-1 and Nasri scored that lovely winner. I think that's when we went on to win the league. 
Yep. I've got a little feeling that's how the game will play out again. A nervy 2-1 win. Or a hard-fought 2-1 win with a, an ex, you know, explosion of relief at that final whistle. Mm, I can absolutely see that. Um, I think from a just from an attacking point of view, I think Chelsea, having had Higuain for a few weeks now, um, I think Pep will pay them a lot of respect as well. Um, Steve, what about for you? Uh, do you think City can get over the line and win on Sunday? Yeah, I think it'll be a repeat of uh, the Arsenal showing, I think, 3-1 City. Nice, very nice. Um, I think it might be uh, high scoring but tight. I actually can see a 3-2 or a 4-3, something like that, um, in eventually. God, I hope it's not a 4-3. I cannot (laughs) hope with that. It's been a long week, has it? Hey, son, how how does Chelsea then lose 4-0 to Bournemouth? Kind of. How does that happen? What do you mean? How does it? Oh, how does it happen? I'll tell you. <laughs> well, exactly where are we with Sarri? You know, I just. I'll tell you exactly how it happened. Just go back to Guardiola's first season and remind yourself of what yeah. happened at Leicester. When you when you look at Everton. that, I've seen the highlights of that game. That, unless I'm mistaken, that's four catastrophic individual errors yeah. that you wouldn't expect Sunday League players to make. Um, and also the kind of manner in which they perform as a defensive unit. Again, you can draw the di- direct parallel to Guardiola's first season. Uh, there were times where we looked at that team and went, how is it you can defend like Sunday League players? Um, so for me, that's the that's the issue that they have defensively. But what, why I think it'll be a high-scoring game is because I do think that Higuain will be a good addition. I think... There are already signs that he can do what Giroud does for Hazard in terms of being a link man, but be much more dangerous himself in front of goal. So I'm not expecting it to be... uh, I don't expect them to be as anemic as Everton and Arsenal were um, when they attack us. Um, Yeah, so that's my prediction. Right, boys, um, we're going to wrap up this Friday show. Um, Mr. Hawking, thank you very much. Pleasure, as always. Steve, thank you very much. Pleasure, mate. To everybody who listened, thank you very much. This was the Friday show on the 9320 podcast. We'll be back for those of you who are members of the 9320 player on Monday with a review of Sunday's game against Chelsea. In the meantime, be safe, be well, and as always, up the blues.